Tom Woods Show, episode 1665. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, by now you've probably noticed that news about the virus is almost always fact-free hysteria these days. So you need my brand new free ebook, Your Facebook Friends Are Wrong About the Lockdown. Go pick it up at wrongaboutlockdown.com. Hey, everybody, Tom Woods here, delighted to be joined by Dan McCarthy today. Dan is editor of Modern Age, which you can visit over at modernagejournal.com. And he's been doing some writing recently that I think is of potential interest to listeners. Dan's a conservative. He's a conservative of the traditional sort, the anti-Iraq war kind of conservative. So he's my kind of guy. You're not going to agree with everything he says, but you know, I get told all the time, why don't you have people other than libertarians on the show? Then I do that, and people get all up in arms. Wait a minute, that guy wasn't a libertarian. Ah, come on, for heaven's sake, Dan's a friend, and we're all going to live if we hear somebody we don't agree with. We are. I guarantee you, you're still going to be alive the other end of this show. All right, anyway, but Dan's smart. I value his opinion, and I want to bounce some things off him. So I'm delighted to welcome him back. Dan, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on, Tom. I've been reading your columns recently. I'm going to link to a couple of them at tomwoods.com slash 1665. The one on Nike, and then the one kind of looking uh, more or less at the political fallout, likely political fallout of the rioting. Now, I've, I talked yesterday with Eric July about the whole thing. We talked George Floyd. We talked about police brutality. We talked about possible solutions to that. And then we talked about rioting and looting and people who implicitly or explicitly make excuses for rioting. Yes, rioting is wrong, but it's always but, but, but. There's always a but in there. And I'd even got to the point, maybe you being more of a stickler than I will have an objection to this, but I even said in my email newsletter, there is an easy way. Now, this is adapted from a Michael Malice saying, but it's different. I said, "Um, there's one question that you have to ask if you want to see if somebody is on the left or the right. And you simply ask, are rioting and looting wrong? And if you're on the right, you'll say yes. And if you're on the left, you'll give a speech. <laughs> Works every time. Has never failed me. So, but my point is that we, we talked about the, the details and the nitty gritty. Here I want to step back a bit and analyze what the likely political fallout of this is. Obviously, Donald Trump is taking pretty dramatic steps and there are a lot of people who are unhappy about those steps and they think it's going to hurt him or they hope it's going to hurt him. But what I think they don't get, just from a political standpoint, is that the polling numbers don't look good for the, let's say, the riot sympathizers. Overwhelmingly, people want some kind of military solution, whether it is outright the U.S. military or the National Guard or something, but they are calling for something drastic to be done. They're, they're really, it's not a, it's a tough sell to say to, to America, let's have the cities burned down and sit back and more or less do nothing. Well, that's right. But there is this paradox where the idea of stern measures against the rioting uh, are very popular in the polls, but Donald Trump himself um, is still lagging. And it seems as if, you know, even when you poll Donald Trump supporters, you'll find that a lot of them are very unhappy with his response to the riots. And uh, I can see why, because on the one hand, you know, the press is as hysterical as always and is claiming that Donald Trump is, you know, acting with, you know, sort of authoritarian rigor against the, the protests and the rioters, the looters and the arsonists. And in fact, you know, he hasn't really done all that much so far. 
you know, he had a, you know, a short excursion out of the White House, you know, yesterday. Uh, this is uh, would have been on you know Monday, uh, where he just goes down to a you know a church that had a fire in its basement, and he poses for a picture there. And uh, Trump has said he's going to declare Antifa to be a uh, domestic terrorist group, but um, you know we don't really actually see mass arrests or anything that's you know stopping these riots from taking place uh, you know in cities across the country. So I think people you know want to see something done, and they're not really sure if Donald Trump is doing it. Well, it just seems to me the opportunity to give unimpeachable, well, if I may use that word, speech to the country is right before him. I mean, to give a really solemn address and with the presumption that the networks will carry it, but in which you really do reach out to the average American and and you say, now, look, I bet there are a lot of you who haven't agreed with a lot of the things that I've done so far, but surely we can agree that this has to stop and that what we've had so far are by and large feckless democratic governors For example, Andrew Cuomo had a tweet the other day, Dan, where at the end he said, this will not be tolerated. And so I retweeted that and I said, I'd hate to see what this would be tolerated would look like if if what we're seeing is is them not – this is their zero tolerance for rioting policy. Pretty terrible. But you could give a talk like this in in which you say, look, we can all understand why people felt the need to protest. And at the same time, virtually everybody can equally understand that we cannot allow this to go on. And so I'm going to take the following measures and I'm calling upon the governors to take the following measures and let the record show that I'm calling for this and the governors are doing that. And we'll see which one winds up looking better in the eyes of history. I mean, you could give a speech like this and you could, you could have it be a beautiful, rhetorically elevated speech where at the end, you'd have to say, yeah, you know, I, I really kind of hate this guy's guts. But on the other hand, obviously, how many more days of burning our cities can we handle? I mean, I, you know, at some point, even chic lefty people have to grow weary of it at some point. Oh, I don't know about that. I think the uh, chic lefty <laughs> okay, people right, That was are, wishful uh, thinking. No, this is, this is, this is a, as I said in one of my columns, this is a celebration. It's not a revolution. These are conquerors who are enjoying the fruits of their victory. And their victory was won, you know, sometime maybe 20 years ago. I can't tell you exactly when, but it was a moral revolution, which said that, you know what, uh, the rule of law is bad. Police officers are bad. Law enforcement is bad. And, uh, you know, anyone who wants to go out on the street instead of, you know, casting a vote in an election or, you know, sort of writing or doing something rational to protest a policy they don't like. No, you just go out in the street, you wave a sign, you shout. And then, you know, sooner or later, you get the arsonists and the looters come along. And you kind of excuse them because, hey, you know, their hearts are in the right place, even if they're going a little too far. And this mentality, this acceptance of lawlessness has crept into even, I mean, certainly it's in the Republican Party. It even seems to be in much of the Donald Trump re-election campaign. Uh, I heard that the Trump campaign sent out an email saying, you know, in the midst of this rioting, hey, you know what? Joe Biden is really bad because he voted for the 1994 crime bill. He co-authored it. I mean, my God, <laughs> I mean, it's as if, you know, you've got subversives trying to elect uh, uh, Joe Biden in the, the Trump campaign. Um, now, you know, there's plenty of things you can pick, you know, nits at with the, um, the 94 crime bill. But this is not exactly the moment to be saying that, hey, my opponent is too tough on crime and not nearly sensitive enough to, um, you know, the concerns of rioters. It's, it's insane. That, that, that is quite surprising. Now, what about let me raise a couple of uh concerns people have had. Now, I know some people are just going to go berserk about what you said about law enforcement, but you're talking about moral principles, and there's no question about it. I mean, you don't have to look very deeply 
to look in, uh, you know, for example, the 60s subculture to see that it didn't matter if the police were all like Andy Griffith. That, that didn't matter. It didn't matter if they were good or bad. It was they represent authority. That's the, uh, the issue. I have plenty of um, problems with the way police departments often conduct themselves. The incentives under which they operate are, as with any division of government power, not ideal, to put it mildly. But what I want to focus on are a couple of items from just recent days. Now, you mentioned the president making that walk from the White House to St. John's, the, the church. And um, there are people who say now, that, or are you read in the, in the paper, that they say that they tear-gassed peacefully assembled people in order to make way for Trump to make that triumphant walk. And that that is surely... Now, then other people say it was not tear gas, it was a smoke that doesn't actually hurt you. I, I don't know, I wasn't there. How am I going to know which one of those is, is, is correct? But what about that story? Well, you're right. The National Park Service has said that, uh, no, that was not tear gas that was used. And this seemed like, to me, um, the right thing for Donald Trump to do. I think it was actually good that he... And the Secret Service and the police showed that they are not intimidated. They're willing to come out of the White House, walk, you know, a block away to St. John's, uh, a church that had just been vandalized and burned, and to say, hey, you know, you've still got some sort of rule of law in this country. You've still got some sort of uh, freedom for people to go from point A to point B without being molested by rioters and having, you know, broken glass uh, thrown at them or something like that. So, you know, as a visual, I think that was perfectly fine. And, you know, this, this whole idea that, you know, there is this, bright line between the protesters and the rioters is unfortunately just not true. I mean, the rioters are a byproduct of the protests. You know, and yeah, you've got a, a right to protest. You can go out, you know, in a public space and do your thing. But again, the whole notion that protests are the best thing you could possibly do and that the protests are somehow saving lives and are, you know, these this wonderful act of resistance. No, it's not. What it's doing is simply going out there and saying, you know what, I have contempt for the rule of law. I don't believe that a jury is going to do justice. I think that, you know, uh, law enforcement is totally corrupt. I think we don't need to have an election. We just need to come out here and pretend like we're the French Revolution and pretend like we're going to, you know, sort of shout at people until, uh, you know, people start collapsing and doing as we tell them. And then, oh boy, we're surprised that we suddenly have lawlessness. We suddenly have looters uh, getting in on the act. We have uh, you know, sort of a left-wing antifa going around with tools and smashing up streets, picking up bricks and throwing them through windows. Gosh, who could have predicted, right? Who could have predicted that when you abandon, you know, civil discourse and the rule of law, you actually get people turning into not just protesters, but actual rioters? Well, I'll get in trouble for this, but for heaven's sake, you know, we got to just talk here. I mean, it's, it's, I know that I'll have a sliver of my listeners who will be disappointed in me, but well, that's okay. I mean, you guys are all good people anyway. But I know I've got at least a core of people who just in their gut, they know something's not quite right here. They know something is wrong. They know it's weird that most libertarians seem to be taking the position of, yeah, 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 I hear you. It's, of course, it's bad to burn down cities, but, 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 but. And I mean, if we, what the, what good are we with all our talk about property rights what good are we if we can't at least say, don't burn down your whole, you know, your your civilization, please. Like we can't say we have to have an asterisk next to that when, when this is going on. So I feel like if I were running a series of protests against the Federal Reserve, and and you know, Dan, I feel strongly about the Federal Reserve. It's a, it's a, and I'll admit that's a nerdy topic. It's not for everyone. 
But intellectually, it gives me pleasure to dismantle the Fed. And I've done this in books and articles, and I just enjoy doing it. If I had a series of protests on this topic, and almost all of them, or a, a substantial number of them, somehow got infiltrated or degenerated into violence that undermined my alleged message, I would stop holding them. And I would say, I obviously have to, for purely strategic reasons, yes, of course, in the abstract, I have the right to do it. How dopey it would have to be to make that objection. Of course, I get that. I'm talking from a, from a purely strategic and common sense standpoint. Wouldn't I say to myself, maybe I'm better off trying to spread this message another way, lest I wind up being confused with violent rioters. Now, that's an obvious point, and yet by saying it, I'm probably losing 20% of my listeners. Like, what, what the hell is going on here? Well, and of course, you know, if, if you staged a protest against the Federal Reserve and there were one, you know, sort of lone nut who goes and does something, you know, awful. Um, oh, we'd all, never all, hear the end of it for the next hundred years. Well, that's right. All the, all the media would swarm upon you. They would, you know, call you a lot of names. They would say, well, look, this is all, this all along, this was a neo-fascist project. This was, you know, never <laughs> right. about, you know, so, I mean, you would not even get the benefit of the doubt. I mean, it would be open and shut and you'd be, uh, you know, yeah, you'd be under investigation, <laughs> if not by the FBI, then by the SPLC. I mean, you know, you'd, your life would be ruined. Uh, whereas what you're saying now, I mean, you actually do have these Antifa elements who are organized and, you know, they carry bricks around, they carry hammers around. And um, everybody knows this. Uh, the media is simply backing this up. They know there's going to be violence. They know this, this is a certainty. And all they're doing is saying, you know what, this is great, this needs to go on. And if anyone, the police or shopkeepers or anyone else, dares to defy the mob and dares to actually try to say, wait a minute, you people are, you know, sort of, you protesters, you rioters, <laughs> I shouldn't say you people, because pe you, you may recall that uh, Ross Perot got in trouble for that, where people was suddenly <laughs> turned into right. some sort of racial epithet. No, I'm talking about leftists. I'm not talking about people. Leftists, uh, you know, have the media behind them. They can get away with violence. Uh, they can't perhaps get quite get away with murder, but they can get away with just about anything uh, short of that. And what's really telling is, you know, uh, one of these columns I wrote talks about how I don't think corporate America really cares about any of this. In fact, they see it as a great marketing opportunity. You know, Nike has been, you know, trying to sell itself as a countercultural brand, a revolutionary stick it to the man brand. So if their stores, you know, with their, you know, sneakers that are cheaply produced get get vandalized and, uh, you know, get looted, that's fine. It's showing that the really cool people out there, the cool, edgy looters, actually want to have Nike products, and that means everyone should go out and buy Nike products. But the small shopkeeper, they're the ones who are getting knocked over here. And a lot of them, a lot of them are the people that the left claims to care about. They're immigrants, they're uh, minority business owners. They are losing their livelihoods. And, you know, not only does the left not care, but I really don't see a hell of a lot of sympathy for most libertarians either. They seem to be looking at this as like, well, you know, who cares? You know, you still have Amazon. You can still get any consumer good you want. Well, who needs, you know, the mom and pop store? You know, okay, so the guy invested a lot of his money in it, but that's just kind of the hazard. And it's really much more important to talk about how bad the police are and how bad the rioters are and how they've destroyed your livelihood and your business. The other part of this, you meant you, you hit on it with the corporate stuff. It's like, I don't know, maybe the Borg is the right image for this. Whenever there is something like this, and I hope... Nothing I'm involved in, well, look, nothing I'm involved in is ever fashionable, so I don't have any risk of that happening, but my inbox is overflowing with emails from CEOs I couldn't care less about. I don't care who runs Etsy. I really don't, and I don't care what that person's opinion of pretty much anything is. 
but I found out about it today. And you'll never guess, Dan, it was entirely predictable. It was by the script. It was the same script I got from the president of Harvard, because I'm on their list, from the president of Columbia, I'm on their list. Not a word, not one, I mean, not even really anything about people who are watching Midtown Manhattan be destroyed, be destroyed with the police standing down because I guess they've been told they have to. They're watching this happen in front of their eyes and we're getting letters telling us what? You can tell the five predictable bullet points. And it's not to say there's absolutely no merit in it, but it's this Borg mentality. It's like when LGBT Pride Month this month comes along. It doesn't even matter what your opinion on that is. What's bizarre about it is everybody feels compelled to say the same things, almost in the same phraseology. I mean, I can't quite put my finger on what's so creepy about it, but everybody suddenly talks the same way, thinks the same way, has the same priorities, won't admit that there are any contrary views whatsoever. Anybody with a contrary view is obviously a reprehensible human being, not even to be acknowledged, much less refuted. You know what I'm talking about? The Borg writing to you all day long? No, I've had the same feeling. And uh, if you look at uh, what journalists and pundits are saying on Twitter, I mean, it's like they're all reading off of the same script. Every single one of them will focus on, you know, here's a member of the press who got, you know, hit by a rubber bullet. You know, here's Donald Trump. This is, you know, what we're claiming, this tear gas. You know, okay, fine. You need to get that information out there. That's perfectly reasonable. But it's all focusing on that and or overwhelmingly focusing on those points. And then the pundits have very little to say about, you know what, maybe this, you know, the fact that you have off-duty police officers being, you know, murdered in cold blood in St. Louis and Las Vegas and other places, maybe that's something that we should kind of stop and think about before we continue to, you know, incite more of this uh, protesting and rioting and it's just stupid rebellion. I and mean, one of the things that really disgusts me about this whole thing is you have people going out there claiming that they are, you know, taking some sort of uh, moral risk by going out there or, or risking their lives by going out there. And just as you've said, in fact, what it is is an exercise in conformity. It's an exercise in everyone saying, you know what, I, am, I have no opinions of my own. I am not interested in facts that might disturb the preconceived narrative that has been implanted in my brain. I am actually just as conformist as you are, if not more so. Let's all go out there and say how much we hate law and order together. You, you can see what's paradoxical about that. On the one hand, it, you know, it's against any kind of legal or structural authority. But on the other hand, it also is 100% conformist. I mean, it really is extremely creepy. It's like, you know, um, uh, what is it, Village of the Damned, where all the children have been replaced by robots or something, or, or Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where everyone's been replaced by a pod person. I mean, it really is this sense of, hey, one of the weaknesses I think libertarians have in trying to deal with this is they, they can only look at formal structures. They look at the police officers. They say, okay, police officers, they formally have the power to come in and to you know, arrest you and use physical force against you. Therefore, they're bad. They look at the White House. They look at you know, the, the president. They say, okay, this is a branch of government. It's therefore bad because it's coercive. They don't think very much about how behind these you know, sort of coercive institutions, you actually have a deeper power structure. Just as you have the deep state in government, you actually have something equivalent to that within society. And it is precisely this Borg mentality, which is able not only to use commercial power, it's able to do a lot of things to you that the government can't do. It's also able to uh, employ government power. It's also able to put someone like you know, uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris into the White House and to have them 
uh, run roughshod and confiscate your guns. I mean, that's where things get really crazy, right? It's one thing to say, you know, hey, I'm a libertarian. I really don't uh, want to have a police force, but hey, I do believe in the Second Amendment. Let's all get guns and let's protect our own shops. There are some downsides to that, but at least there's, you know, some sort of willingness to stand up for an order of some kind and property rights of some kind. But of course, you know, if libertarians are going to stand by and see Joe Biden elected, then what's going to happen? Well, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to work to take away all those firearms. So the police aren't going to enforce the law and you're not going to be able to enforce your own property rights. You're simply going to be out there easy pickings for the looters. Meanwhile, I guess it was two or three days ago, a colleague of mine said something like this. Whenever somebody comes along and says, we need to have a conversation about X, what they really mean is, I'm about to engage in a haranguing monologue about X. It, it never means we're actually going to have a conversation. And so then these these very people will say, we need to have a conversation about race or so whatever it is. Maybe race is the one they, they always say they want to have the conversation about. But it ne- it's never a conversation. It's always hectoring. And no matter what you say, you're a racist or a white supremacist. So if you say, but race doesn't matter to me or I don't see race or whatever, they say that's white supremacist. And if you say, you know, look, I try to be kind to everybody in my daily life, that's white supremacist because you're not focusing on the structural problems. I mean, almost no matter what you do, you're not just misguided or uninformed. You are assumed to be the worst possible kind of person there is because the worst kind they can think of is a white supremacist. It boggles my mind. So- we can't talk about anything because as soon as you open your mouth, you're branded something. Everybody's a racist no matter what you do. If you do X, if you do not X, you're a racist either way. What the – so, all right. <laughs> Let me get on to what we were supposed to talk about from the beginning, which is what does this mean electorally now? I mean there's a part of me that thinks kind of the way you do that maybe in a way we're back to Richard Nixon again and the great silent majority, except – there's much less moral cohesion in the country than there was in the um, late 60s, early 70s. That's one thing. Secondly, the police are definitely not held in as high regard as they used to be. That's number two. But at the same time, it does seem like when you look at the poll numbers, I just saw a poll saying, should um, the U.S. military be called in to suppress the rioting? 58 to 30 percent, yes. Uh, same poll, should the National Guard be called out? 71% yes. Overwhelming. I mean, that's that's a pretty decisive uh, series of numbers. So you would think all Trump has to do is contrast his walk to that church. I'm just thinking of the, of the visuals here. His walk to that church with these governors impotently giving meaningless, mealy-mouthed speeches with images of burning buildings and people climbing on cars in the background. I mean, the ads write themselves in a way. Am I wrong? No, you're quite right. But it's going to take a an administration and also a Trump campaign that really want to win and really want to win the way Trump won in 2016. And unfortunately, if you have a lot of squishy Republicans in both of those institutions, they're going to confuse the messaging, dilute it, and prevent it from being effective. You know, the lesson of 1968, on the one hand, is Richard Nixon, but it's also, on the other hand, uh, Lyndon Johnson. I mean, Lyndon Johnson was a guy who, you know, escalated the Vietnam War, uh, and he got himself into a mess that he couldn't get the country out of. And, uh, you know, you had riots taking place under Johnson's administration. Johnson, you know, he was a civil rights president. He passed plenty of legislation, you know, signed plenty of legislation. He was not necessarily, you know, the guy you would have expected to be kowtowing to the mob. But he mismanaged all of this. He couldn't, you know, seem to be have lost control of the country. 
And so he didn't even bother running for re-election because he knew it was hopeless. I mean, his own party was divided and uh, he couldn't have won uh, in November, or at least he assumed he couldn't. So Donald Trump, you know, not in quite exactly the same position as either Johnson or Nixon. But um, boy, I mean, he's, he's got to take a very bold stand here. And, it, you know, he has to do what you said earlier in the conversation where, you know, he has to make a big speech. He has to, you know, expand on the visuals and he actually has to follow through with policy I mean, he should be arresting these rioters and putting them in jail for 20-year sentences. The idea that, you know, you're just going to, you know, make some symbolic designations of some, you know, semi-coherent organization as a domestic terrorist group, what does that actually accomplish, right? I mean, what you want to see is that the criminals, the looters, the arsonists, the murderers get put behind bars. Short of that, I think everything else is going to really leave the American people unsatisfied. How about if you were Joe Biden right now? Are you concerned about what this means for you, or do you think chaos in some way has to work against the incumbent? Yeah, it works against the incumbent. And, you know, here too, Biden's in the same position as Trump in that he has a card which he can play either intelligently or stupidly. You know, on the one hand, Joe Biden actually has a record of being fairly tough on crime. And this is something that, you know, has actually disturbed uh, some of the Democratic base, but if uh, Joe Biden were willing to say to, you know, the, the sort of Bernie Sanders left and the people who are far to the left of Bernie Sanders and simply say, you know what, I'm actually proud of my votes in the 1990s against, uh, you know, the rioters and the criminals, you know, that would actually put uh, Biden in a pretty strong position. And if he chooses someone like Kamala Harris as his running mate, there too, you have, you know, a, a decision that could work one of two ways. Um, you know, on the one hand, she could be seen as being sympathetic uh, to the to the rioters and the protesters. Uh, but she could also be seen as, you know, being a prosecutor who might actually, you know, be just tough on the the basic law and order questions. I mean, regardless of ideology, just someone who is, you know, going to at least put some people in prison. And I think the American people, if they, you know, sort of close their eyes and just, you know, say, okay, what is a law and order ticket? They might go for a, a Biden-Harris ticket or something similar to it. Uh, so Donald Trump really has to make a persuasive case that he's in charge, that he's actually, you know, successfully fighting these uh, insurrections and that uh, his record is more tough on crime than Joe Biden's is. And Biden, you know, I think, I think so far he's been keeping a low profile, but uh, I think he's been willing just by default to kind of win from both directions, win from the, you know, liberals who say, hey, if we uh, elect Joe Biden, he'll, uh, you know, push through a lot of left-wing policies that we like. But also there are just a lot of, you know, sort of especially older Americans who remember that Joe Biden in the 90s was, you know, a relatively sane Democrat who are saying, you know what, maybe we actually need the return of that because, you know, these Republicans seem to be kind of confused about whether they are, you know, tough on crime or whether they're so uh, afraid of being called bad names by the press that they're just not willing to do anything. I've been, I was about to say I've been surprised. I've not been surprised, but let's just say maybe I've been surprised at how many people I've seen saying things like, well, you know, you had to know when we elected Donald Trump that something like this would happen. We're talking about cities, the overwhelming majority of which have been governed by Democrats for, as I put it on Twitter, something like 11 gazillion years. And some of these states have Democratic governors, legislatures, the courts are all Democrats. It's whatever, every, all down to the 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 dog catcher and the school board, everything is is Democrat. Things like police, that's your bailiwick. I mean, that's up to the, the local authorities and the state authorities. That's nothing to do with the president. And yet 
it, with a straight face, we're being told, well, this needs this goes to show we need somebody else in the White House. Why does it never show that you need somebody else in the governor's mansion, ever? No, you're right. Exactly right. And uh, and that was true with the whole COVID-19 thing as well, where everything was made a uh, federal case. But of course, you know, uh, health and safety are primarily state and local level uh, concerns. And it's not as if, you know, the... Um, uh, National Centers for Disease Control have any kind of you know magic formula to help people you know escape from the ravages of COVID nineteen. It really does come down to the local policies and the state policies. And if governors and mayors are not going to take responsibility, then the country is yeah, going to be a shipwreck. And again, I mean, this is what's interesting to me about the whole protest phenomenon is that it's it's meaningless, right? In terms of what it actually achieves, like, do you change a law directly by protesting? No, of course you don't. The whole claim is that, well, maybe you can change a law because lawmakers are going to get scared or they're going to be embarrassed or something. So the whole thing is meant to be a psychological operation, an attempt to just change the way people think and evaluate. And um, again, it, it's this tyranny of a certain kind of, it's not a tyranny of the majority over opinion, it's actually a tyranny of an organized minority over opinion, or a tyranny of elite opinion over everyone else, over normal law-abiding people. And the organs of government are actually kind of useless and hopeless up against this kind of elite opinion that is working in a very you know, kind of lockstep way, not because it's a conspiracy, but just because the fundamental values that all of the people who have the power to craft opinion in the media and in the educational establishment and even in corporate America, all the fundamental values that have been inculcated in these people are left-wing values. They're values which say rioting and arson and looting. Oh, they're a little bit naughty, but you know what? Uh, what's really bad is if, you know, you know, not if you have 300, uh, you know, deaths by gangland shootings in Chicago. No, what's really bad is if you have, you know, one death uh, of someone who has a heart attack in the middle of getting arrested. That's the thing that, you know, justifies having, you know, civil unrest and, you know, uh, you know, a quasi-revolutionary or at least, you know, play-revolutionary uh, activity on the streets. This really is the end of, you know, sort of self-government and its replacement by elite psychological manipulation. Who's been good on this, do you think, in public life? Well, uh, it's hard Tucker, to come up with an answer, isn't it? Isn't that shocking? Tucker Carlson on his show, you know, does, uh, you know, put out, uh, you know, messages that you won't hear anywhere else. But no, I mean, this isn't just a, a Trump problem where he's not being assertive enough. This is, you know, other Republicans have, you know, fallen by the wayside as well. I mean, Trump, of course, you know, I mean, you could say that what he's trying to do is to be restrained and to kind of show the, uh, to not rush into uh, you know confrontations and so forth, and to basically show all the virtues that his opponents say that he doesn't have. But of course, he doesn't get any credit from his opponents for showing those virtues or for showing any restraint. So it's just kind of uh, a total loss. Well, this is a terrible way to end the episode. So, I you know I it's hard for me to find any reason for hope at this point, Dan. <laughs> I mean, well, but you know what? So I mean, but I, let, let's say this though. So you do have this Borg mentality. And the thing is, it may be a complete sort of Potemkin village, right, to change the metaphor. Um, real Americans, you know, by which I mean people who actually have jobs and who, you know, have some relationship to, you know, buying and selling, producing things, people who go to church, people who, you know, just want to obey the law. They don't like to see African-Americans mistreated by either criminals or by, you know, overzealous law enforcement or by anyone else. And they would really like to see the country, you know, sort of come together and heal. But they're not, you know, supporting 
protests that are inane and the riots that develop inevitably out of them. These people, uh, maybe they are, if not a silent majority, still enough of a silent plurality that they're going to make their presence felt. And uh, if not, then, you know, we may be in for some rough times. But um, there's a pendulum here and things will swing around. And the fact is, I just don't think you can run a country, certainly can't run one that claims to be democratic or Republican or self-governing, if you have this kind of elite opinion that can't actually stop crime from taking place on the street, but it can, you know, uh, virtually uh, get people to commit harakiri if they uh, express the wrong opinion about uh, a police procedure that goes awry. I pointed out on social media that just like that, all of a sudden, concern about whether democracy is thriving in nowhereistan somewhere 5,000 miles away just dropped to 54,722 on most people's priority list. All of a sudden, it suddenly rings true that really you need to focus on your home first, don't you? The idea of the United States lecturing anybody at this point is now getting to the point of being utterly laughable. Well, it certainly shows, right, that uh, why would anyone imagine that we can bring law and order to Syria or to Afghanistan or to Iraq when we can't bring law and order you know, to Washington, D.C. within you know, four blocks of the White House? But I, I'm afraid that uh, you know, the sort of optimistic you know, return to reality that might be expected here uh, might be exactly wrong because the other thing here is that, well, okay, so you get a Biden administration or you get you know, some other uh, you know, change, maybe the Democrats take the Senate, they're going to pursue the same kind of you know, globalist and interventionist uh, military policy that they've always wanted to pursue. Or you know, if somewhere down the line you get an anti-Trump Republican, a Nikki Haley or someone becomes president, that person is going to pursue the neocon foreign policy agenda just as before. So the fact that you know, our authorities and our leaders and our elite can't actually provide basic law and order here at home somehow doesn't mean actually that they're going to not try to continue to rule the world. And in fact, that they never get held accountable for anything. And that the very few uh, occasions when they are held accountable, like in the 2016 election, where the entire establishment was humiliated by Donald Trump's victory, the fact that all of that can be unwound by you know, a number of manipulated protests just goes to show that the elite is not just you know, sort of incompetent, but it's also irresponsible and doesn't have to pay the price for the terrible decisions it makes that destroy lives in this country and around the world. All right, folks, I want you to check out modernagejournal.com, which is the website of Modern Age, of which Dan is the editor. Modern Age is a venerable journal indeed, going back all the way to the 1950s, that has published anyone and everyone who is anyone in the conservative and libertarian worlds, uh, from Russell Kirk to Murray Rothbard and many in between. So uh, modernagejournal.com will be linked at tomwoods.com slash 16 65, along with a couple of Dan's columns. And Dan, as I've been saying to people, it's uh, great to talk to you, but I'm sorry it had to be under these circumstances. Thank you. Well, but it's you know important that we uh, have these discussions because uh, this, this is actual real resistance, right? It's thinking for yourself and going against the grain of the Borg. And uh, you do a tremendous service with your podcast, Tom, and uh, I'm really honored to be on the show every time. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And, and that actually reminds me of one final thing that I've I've been, I've been writing a lot on Twitter lately, as you can tell. I was wondering out loud, imagine holding opinions that are shared by every major power center in society. The media agrees with you on everything. The, the CEOs at least claim to agree with you on everything. Entertainment 
agrees with you on everything. Academia agrees with you on everything. And you still feel like you're chic and cheeky. Well, you know what? Try being on the other side of that when you feel like all the media is against you, entertainment, all the way down, all those institutions hate your guts and can't stand the sight of you. Try that on for size. You want to be cheeky and different? Try that on for size. But I rather doubt there's going to huge rush by influential people to go do that, but I can't imagine being anywhere else. I do not have any desire to appease the New York Times or anybody who is seeking the approval of the New York Times. And with that, Dan, I will let you go and thank you again. Thanks for having me on, Tom. All right, folks, that's our episode for today. Now, tomorrow we have a non-virus, non-riot topic. How about that? Matt Ridley, our old friend from the UK, is coming back to talk uh, more about innovation, some of really, really interesting stories of, of innovation and questions like, how come we have no idea who invented the personal computer? All kinds of interesting stuff like that. And what are the institutional prerequisites for, and other prerequisites for innovation? How does it happen and why and what are the circumstances? All kinds of interesting stuff to talk about with Matt Ridley. So make sure you subscribe to the Tom Woods Show on Apple Podcasts over at tomwoods.com slash Apple, and I'll see you then. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.